Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, I hope your Bibles are already open to Daniel chapter 4. If not, let's turn there now, the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. So far in this uh, chapter by chapter study, the common denominator to each chapter is not Daniel. It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The common denominator is this king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 1, we were introduced to Daniel and his three, three friends, these young men of noble birth who were kidnapped by Nebuchadnezzar, his armies, and taken to Babylon for reprogramming to ultimately serve in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. In chapter two, we saw Daniel save many lives, including his own, by interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a great statue. And last week from chapter three, we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego courageously refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's idol and how God rescued them from certain death. So this morning we come to chapter four. Chapter four not only contains information about King Nebuchadnezzar, it is written from his point of view. Really, it's an open letter from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to all the other nations of the world concerning the greatness of Jehovah God. So in reality, it's his personal testimony of faith. Read it that way. Look at verse one of chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now this is a testimony. When I was a boy growing up in Baptist churches in the South from time to time, usually on Sunday evening we had testimony hour. Some of you remember those. Members would take turns going to the microphone or standing where they were seated to declare how God had done some great thing in their life. Sometimes they told about their conversion experience, sometimes how God had brought them through a difficult time, but it was a testimony to the goodness of God. Well, that seems to be exactly what we have here in the fourth chapter of Daniel. As we look at scripture, one element of salvation is that it is essential, is that one must be humble. First Peter 5, 5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward of humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor. So we often remind one another the purpose of our existence on this planet as Christians is to glorify our creator. God says, however, that he will not share that glory with anyone else. And Nebuchadnezzar was determined to take the glory that only God is due for himself. 
And knowing his wicked heart, God graciously warned Nebuchadnezzar in a dream concerning his pride. Look at verse 4. Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter telling what happened. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and related the dream to me, to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But Daniel finally came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation." Now, I really doubt that by this time in his life, this is probably 30 years or so after his first vision we find in previous chapter, I really doubt that Nebuchadnezzar needed anyone to interpret this dream. But he did. He called his conjurers, his wise men, by the way, who had failed in their previous attempts to interpret his dream. But because I think he wanted them this time to tell him what he wanted to hear. That this dream's not about you. It's about your enemies. But Ultimately, he called Daniel and he explained why he finally called Daniel. He said, because the spirit of the holy God was in Daniel. He's different. And I wonder if our lost friends and our neighbors, when times are hard, think of us. I need to go to that neighbor. I need to talk to that friend because they're different. The spirit of God is within them. So Daniel heard the dream from the king. This time he didn't ask him to tell him the content of the dream. And he said, here's the content. I, I saw a great tree. It was large and fruitful, so large and fruitful that the animals of the field and all the people could find shade under it. And then he saw the holy watcher, which is an angel, a messenger from God who, who made a declaration concerning the tree he said, chop it down, bring it low, and then wrap its stump in a band of iron and bronze. I, I take that means that to keep it from cracking, that is that it would not be totally destroyed. And, and even verse 16 moves from imagery of a, a plant, a large tree to a man, which of course what it's really about, verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And here is the point. God is going to send to the object of this dream's interpretation, a period of insanity, of madness. And he says seven periods of time, which we take to be seven years. Well, this is a pretty harsh dream. There's its content. What about its uh, interpretation? Well, verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The, the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and 
grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. Hear this, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Something of note here, when Daniel finally gave the interpretation, verse 19, he, he doesn't take any joy in relating this bad news to the king. Now, this is a wicked king, full of pride, worshiped the worst kinds of idols. He had taken Daniel and his friends away from their homeland, away from all their friends and family. And yet Daniel has a very clear love and affection for him. He takes no joy in the fact that God's going to, to bring him low. In fact, he says it this way, if only this dream was for those who hate you. I wish what I had to tell you were, were not so, but it is so. And so I must tell you. And so, I, friends, we have a task, don't we? of taking the gospel to a lost and dying world and, and shining the light of truth. And part of that truth is that men and women are sinners all. And unless they repent, they are bound for an eternity in hell. And yet as Charles Spurgeon said, we should never preach about hell without a tear in our eye. We should never take joy in the fact that the vast majority of, of the, the citizens of this country do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior. That ought to break our heart. Jesus, of course, is our great example in this. Even as we saw in our study of Luke, as he rode the foal of that donkey in the eastern gate of Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him, the abuse and the crown of thorns and ultimately the cross, and those who were going to carry it out were standing on the roadsides. And yet, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her brood, but you would not. Jesus took no joy in what was coming to them because of their sin, and neither should we. And yet, you'll also note here that just because it was bad news does not mean that Daniel withheld it from the king. That's what his contemporaries and his peers were known for. We saw that in the last interpretation of the statue. Nebuchadnezzar knew that if they, asked, if they were asked to interpret the dream and he gave them the content of the dream, they would make up some interpretation that was favorable to Nebuchadnezzar. That's how you won his favor. That's how you stayed on his right side. And Daniel didn't play that game. He was a man who commerced in truth. So he did not withhold the bad news, even when he knew it would not be appreciated. I read with interest this week an article in one of our Baptist publications in which an older pastor who I've known of for many years said, when we come to church on Sunday, we don't need to talk about all the things that are going on in the world that'll just make people feel bad. I don't know about you, but that whore has already left the barn at my house. We feel bad. Things are bad, and it's not loving to ignore that. We're not to withhold bad news, even when we know it makes people feel bad. In fact, it is not an act of love to let our nation remain in sin and not point it out. And I believe the most loving thing 
And I would say this 4th of July week, the most patriotic thing we can do is share the gospel and to bow our knee before the Lord in humility. So Daniel, having interpreted the dream that the king was going to be chopped down and he was going to be brought low and he was going to lose his senses for seven years and wander around in the wilderness eating grass like an animal until the dew of heaven was on him in the morning and his hair would grow like a eagle's feathers and his claws like that of a wild thing. And so Daniel, after interpreting the dream, look at verse 27. He says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. That's what the ESV says. Another interpretation says, my advice to you is to repent. And friends, that is my advice and the Bible's advice to our nation and to its leaders is to repent, humble yourselves and recognize that we can't solve all of our problems without God, that we desperately need him. See, this was Nebuchadnezzar's default setting. He would look at the blessings of God and said, I did this or I deserve this. And that seems to have become our default setting as a whole. All of these blessings and the greatness that God has bestowed upon us, we did it or, or we deserved it. And friends, the, the truth is we do not deserve it. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be mercy. And so as Nebuchadnezzar said, we don't need you. We've said to God, we don't need you in our schools. We don't need you in our marriages. We don't need you in our homes. Let, let me put a very fine point on it, lest you wonder. I believe that we are under the judgment of God. I, I sometimes hear people say, if we don't repent, we're going to be judged by God. We're already being judged by God. See, we sometimes think of judgment as God casting thunderbolts from heaven are sending these 10 plagues we read about in Egypt. One of the ways that God often judges just by withholding his hand. This is what we see in Romans chapter one, isn't it? Paul says this was the pattern of humanity that, that, that God blessed and we took the credit for it and God warned and then God says, okay, that's the way you want it. And so he lets our depravity go to its logical conclusion because we don't recognize his sovereignty. And of course, that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, the prophet warns him to repent, turn away from this. And I believe had he repented, there would not be the judgment because that is God's pattern. He gives a warning just as he did with Noah before he destroyed the world with the flood. Did you know he gave a hundred years after he first told Noah he was going to do that? And I take that was a hundred years that people could have repented, but of course they didn't. And so God ultimately brings judgment. We see that beginning in verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. And 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon 
The king reflected and says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word, the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the most high as ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. All of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That is everything that God had predicted in the dream. And Daniel had predicted prophetically happened just as God said it would. This is just 12 months later. Things can change a lot in a year, can't they? Think about our own situation. Less than a year ago, we were celebrating the lowest unemployment in the history of this country. Less than a year ago. The stock market was hitting on all cylinders. Businesses were opening left and right. Our church was filled to capacity every Sunday. We sat shoulder to shoulder with one another, not knowing what awaited us just a few months later. So here he is, 12 months after Daniel had advised him to repent. Perhaps he had had some sort of... A superficial change of attitude. We don't know, but nothing had changed at his core. See, his core problem was sin, pride and arrogance. And unless the root of sin is pulled up and shaken loose and laid in the sun to dry, it'll keep coming back time and time again. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, the last three chapters we've seen him, He'll declare God is God, and then he'll go back to worshiping false gods. No God like Daniel's God, and then he'll worship himself. Raise up a statue. No God like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. He's a deliverer. And then we find him going up on his roof, looking out over the city and saying, Oh, Babylon, which I have made. I'm worthy. He began to take the glory that was reserved for, for God. Pride has a way of doing that. It comes back time and time again. Nebuchadnezzar had said the right thing several times, but he had that sin of pride that because he did not deal with appropriately, God did. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth. That reminds me of another prideful king in the New Testament, King Herod. Proud and boastful man. He made this suit of clothing for himself, which shined in the sun, glittered. He was proud of himself and proud of his outfit. And he went out to welcome one day some dignitaries. And because this is what you do for kings, they said, This is not the voice of a man, but the voice of a God. And Herod, who should have known better, living in Israel, didn't say, Oh, don't say that. Yes, it's a nice suit of clothes, but I'm no God. The scripture says he did not give glory to God. And God struck him dead just like that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not the first, and, and he won't be the last to be brought low. We see that with Pharaoh. 
who the scripture describes as hardening his heart and being stiff-necked. And God sent plague after plague after plague until finally his own son was taken. And yet even that was not enough. He pursued the nation of Israel until his armies were drowned in the Red Sea. Many a king has been brought low, many a political figure, but also many, many a pastor. And in the 25 years I've been doing this, I have stood aghast and watched many of my peers from seminary fall into this same trap. Of when the Lord blessed them and, and blessed their ministries, they began to believe they deserved it or they did it. And rather than give glory to God, they took it for themselves and, and God had to bring them low. And look, it's not just people out there. I suspect if we were to put a microphone here and give you time, we could probably fill up today of giving anecdotal evidence of how God has brought each of us slow at different times in our lives. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. So that's really the question I get about the book of Daniel more than any other. Was Nebuchadnezzar truly converted? Well, I'm not God. And I made a decision long ago not to proclaim who's a genuine Christian and who's not. But I, I think the evidence is strong on the side that he was genuinely converted. Now, why would I say that? Well, look at his testimony in verse 34. But at the end of that period, that is that seven years in which he was brought low, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures forever, generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at that time, that is after he confessed that confession of God's sovereignty, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, the reason I believe this confession was real is because it lines up with the pattern of redemption that we see throughout the Bible. Here's what I mean. The pattern starts with this. God who is merciful and kind and slow to anger, blesses our life. And would you agree that God has blessed all of our lives here today? Not just with salvation and special blessings, but, but with his common grace, those good things in life, family and friends and a nice town to live in, roof over our head and good food to eat. And God blesses humanity with these common blessings. The scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust. But before long, man begins to rebel against God. And he says, I want more or I deserve better. We see this with our first parents, Adam and Eve. God created them and said, it's good, this creation that I've created. And he gave them a perfect environment in which to live. Gave them fulfilling work to do. 
gave them one prohibition, not to eat of this tree that was in the midst of the garden. Satan appealed to their pride. God doesn't want you to be as great as him. He's withholding from you. He's holding out on you. You deserve better. Even though God had put them in the garden of Eden. By the way, when we try to describe the most idyllic and perfect circumstance, we say it was Edenic, right? And yet they weren't satisfied with paradise. They wanted more and different and better. And so they rebelled against God's blessing. And before you know it, when we rebel against God's blessings, he lets us go until we replace the God of the Bible with one of our own making. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter one, not recognizing God any longer, they sought to replace him. And they started out by worshiping statues and by the end they're worshiping creepy crawly things. This is what humanity does. They, they replace the holy God of heaven with something much lesser namely himself. That's what man ultimately worships. But again, God is patient, slow to anger and merciful. And so rather than striking us dead every time we sin, he gives warning after warning, does he? He sends prophet after prophet. He gives us the word of God, which tells us what's going to happen if we don't bow the knee. But then ultimately, because he loves us, for those who are his, his own, God brings consequences to bear. We see this in the story of the prodigal son, don't we? Who God had blessed with a wonderful father and a wonderful home and great job and good food. Wasn't enough for him. He rebelled against that. He says, I don't want this authority in my life. He goes to a far land. He wastes his inheritance with wanton living. He ends up feeding pigs and eating their slop. The scripture says, then he came to his senses. God had to humble him before he could save him. This is what God does. This is the next step in redemption. It's the humbling of the prideful. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. And I read that like this. If you're God's child, if you're one of the elect, you're going to have to get to a place of humility before you're saved. And either you will humble yourself or he will humble you. And I think there's some people in here that could give a hearty amen that it's much less painful to humble yourself before God has to. Because God will do whatever is necessary to, to humble his children. And then that, that leads to that moment of repentance that moment of confession. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. A open letter to everyone. He's not ashamed to say, look, I was prideful. I sinned. God brought me low and I confess that he was right to do so. Verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures to generation after generation. Verse 35, he does according to his will in the host of heaven. No one can ward off his hand. He's saying, he's God and I'm not. And then he confessed. The Bible says in, in Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And what does it mean to be saved? It means to be 
rescued from the just white hot wrath of God that we deserve. It also means to be changed and restored from an alien and a stranger to the things of God to a friend, as Jesus calls his disciples, to a son and daughter of the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar understood this. He says in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true. That is, that, that is really the confession of every Christian, that everything Jesus has said he is, is true. We agree with his assessment of himself and his assessment to us, and his ways are just. He's right and righteous, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar walked in pride. That, is, that was his way of life. It wasn't just this weak moment in his life. That was his way of life. He walked in pride. And yet God is able to humble even a king like Nebuchadnezzar. And it is my prayer that God would humble many of the leaders of our nation, that he would humble the pastors of his churches, and that he would humble the deacons of his churches, and that he would humble the members of his churches, that we know there is a God in heaven. And the only hope that this country has is repentance and faith in Jesus. And then we would take that message all over the world. Let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. It's incredibly clear and poignant, Lord. You, you tell us that these things were written for our benefit. Father, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon wrote. We keep making the same mistakes and falling into the same patterns of sin as our ancestors did. Father, one of the great sins of mankind is the sin of pride. That if there is a God in heaven, we don't have need of him. We're sufficient unto ourselves. And Lord, you have made it abundantly clear that that is not the case. Lord, we need you. We have always needed you. We recognize anew today our need of you. And so I, I pray, Lord, as we confess that you alone are worthy of praise, that you would restore our nation. Father, not just to, to, to a place, place of political and economic prominence so that we can be prideful again, but Lord, that you'd restore us spiritually. Father, that we would see a, a movement of awakening and revival in our land. Lord, let it begin here at First Baptist Keller. Let it begin in my own heart. And Lord, that we would see from coast to coast a bowing of the knee to your sovereign lordship. Father, until then, help First Baptist Keller and its members be a clear beacon of light and truth in this community. And Father, help us as we go out to work and to school and to our sports teams, Lord, to be a preserving agent, a minister of reconciliation wherever we go. And Father, when that restoration happens, we're going to be very careful to give you the praise and honor and thanks for it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.